Good afternoon, folks. Hello. Uh, my name's Ian Freer. I work for Empire Magazine. Uh, please join me in welcoming Matt Sharman, the uh, writer of Bridges Rise. Somehow, I guess a lot of people might know the, the Gary Powers U2 incident story, but where did you find James Donovan? How did you get the idea for the movie? It was, it was a footnote in a book. Okay. And it, and it still feels um, like a bit of a miracle that I found it, really. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, of this period in history, the Cold War period and, and the Kennedy administration. And I was reading a book by, uh, a brilliant book by a man called Robert Dalek called An Unfinished Life, which was, uh, is, a, is a biography of JFK and his time in the White House. Right. And there's a chapter about Cuba. And after the whole Bay of Pigs catastrophe, JFK sent uh, somebody to negotiate directly with Fidel Castro to kind of try and get back the 1,500 servicemen yep. that had been caught and captured. You see it in the final crawl of the movie. And in this chapter of this book, it mentioned that the man that JFK had sent was, was a, uh, an American uh, New York lawyer called James Donovan. And it had a little asterisk, and down the bottom of the page in the footnote, it said, Donovan first came to prominence for the part he played in the spy swap between <coughs> Gary Powers and Rudolph Abel. And I remember reading that thinking, who is this guy? Uh, because that seems to me to be a remarkable thing to send a lawyer to do, a New York lawyer, not a, not a CIA operative, not a... Right. Anyone from the State Department, none of that. You send a lawyer to do that. And the more I dug around, the more I realised that there really wasn't an awful lot about James Donovan. There wasn't a lot out there. Um, so I started to piece together through the New York Times archive and the, the Kennedy administration, uh, the, the Kennedy Presidential Library, as much as I could about James Donovan. I realised this guy had played an incredible part in, in this moment in history, but no one really knew much about it. And what, what did you sort of struck you as it being cinematic about it? Why do you think it made great drama? Well, I tend to always start with a character. So if a right. character intrigues me and makes me wonder how they've got into this situation or how they're going to get out of this situation, yeah. then I'm intrigued. And a big moment for me came uh, when I met James Donovan's son, uh, who is you know, depicted in the movie, and I met him while I was researching it in New York in a coffee shop in... in Midtown, and um, it was very emotional. It was a very emotional meeting because this was this was way back at the start, really, of me researching and putting it together. And I think he'd been trying for years, hadn't he, to get a film made about. He his dad. was very passionate about his dad and about what his dad had done. And I think he felt that his dad hadn't had the moment that he deserved because yeah. his dad was a very quiet man. He was a good guy. He wasn't a showy man at all. He'd done this thing. And he hadn't pushed to get a movie made of his own life or any of that stuff. He just, he died very early. He died when he was 53. And sort of history had kind of forgotten him in a way. And when I met yeah. with him and said, look, I, I really, really, I think your dad's a hero. And I think what he did is remarkable. Uh, it was, it's, it's an emotional thing when you say to someone, do you trust me to kind of tell their story? And he did. And, and, and from then, that really gave me the impetus, I think, to, to then go and pitch it. To, to sort of gather all that research together into a like a 15-minute pitch and go out to, to L.A. and start to pitch it to people. So t tell us about that. How did you get it in front of DreamWorks? Um, well, it was, it was a really um, very uh, laborious <laughs> sort of thing of meeting seven, eight, doing it, seven, eight pitches a day for five days. Yep of this 15-minute pitch, of me pitching anyone who'd listen, anyone who was, would stop long enough for me to pitch them. And uh, my agent was great. He got me lots of 
really, really good sort of opportunities to talk to people about this story. And I was really passionate about it. I put a lot of work into the pitch. I love... Um, we were talking about it outside. You know, I love, I love those kind of old Hollywood biographies of Frank Capra and those sort of things. And I love the idea of being able to pitch a story in 15 minutes. I think it's a really fun thing to be able to do. And I also think it's a great discipline. I think if you can tell a story in 15 minutes, you can boil it down to that. Yeah. Often that's a really great way of... Seeing the of, bones of it. Exactly, it yeah. 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 So I was very keen to try and do that. And uh, the more the week moved on, the more we started to get interest in it. And I had phone calls with my agent every night, and I kept going back to this horrible little motel, and I would get phone calls from him saying, OK, so these people like it now. And then these, anyway, we, we slowly worked our way sort of up this chain. And then the end of the week, um, I met an uh, uh, executive from DreamWorks in a griddle diner thing with these massive pancakes being flipped and all the rest of it, and across this very greasy table told him this story. And he had a very big smile on his face, at the end of it, and he said, OK, I'm going to go right now and tell Stephen this because I've got a feeling this will be right up his street. So he went... OK, Stephen. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he, he called him Stephen. I, at that point, still was not allowed to call him Stephen. Um, and he said, I'm, I'm going to go and tell Stephen Spielberg this story, and he left. And I was, I was hoping, like anything, that DreamWorks would be the home for him. I yeah. really was, because I've, you know, grown up with Stephen Spielberg posters on my wall, you know? And, yeah. and so... DreamWorks bought it, and I flew home, uh, and then I had an answer machine phone call when I got home. I picked up this, this message that said, Steven Spielberg would like to hear this directly from you. So I had this very odd phone call over the phone that I'm sure a lot of people have had before, these, these conference calls where you know that there's, in truth, you know there's probably eight people kind of hovering on the line, but they're not really declaring themselves. They're just kind of silently <laughs> there, which is terrifying. <laughs> but the phone rang, and, and um, Steven Spielberg said, I feel really conscious, self-conscious calling him Stephen. No, now. no, no, you, you, you know him. Of course you call His him middle Steven. name's Alan. So Stephen Alan Spielberg <laughs> uh, phoned, and he said, I hear you've got this story to tell me. And uh, so I pitched him, and about halfway through, about eight minutes through the pitch, there was silence. And I thought, again, with these conference calls, you... Imagine people have probably dropped off the call. So uh, I said, can I just check you're still there? And he said, I'm wrapped, just keep going. We got to the end of it. And he said, when can you, when can you write it? I love this. OK, I, I read an evening standard that you did this in your boxer shorts. I did do it in my boxer shorts. <laughs> yeah, I did. Did that help? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it could have been worse. Like, I was very hot and bothered. I could have just gone the whole hog and just full Monty and nothing on it. But I, uh, no, I don't know what it was. Oh, well, I know exactly what it was. For me, that man is a very, very huge figure in my childhood. Yeah. I can remember pretty much where I saw most of his movies in the 80s and 90s when, you know, growing up and where I was and the friends I was with and the occasion and all of that. And so you get this moment to tell him a story and I didn't want to screw it up. Yeah. I just didn't want to screw it up. DreamWorks had bought it as a pitch, but I wanted him to direct it. I wanted him to love it enough to keep wow. tracking it through the writing process. Yeah. So that's why I got very hot and bothered. Um, <laughs> and then when, when you start working with, with, with him on the script, what are the practicalities of working with Spielberg on the script? Do you, do you get a lot of time with him? Do you, is it email? How, how does he deliver his notes? What, what, it was what really notes? interesting. So I wrote... I, I really killed myself to write the first draft in about five weeks because I, I really wanted to... I'd been told by people at DreamWorks that he, had, he hadn't directed anything since Lincoln. It had been, at that point, not quite two years, but... Yeah getting close to that and he was 
itchy to direct something. He really wanted to. He had five different projects in very different stages, yeah. you know. And I was coming very late to the party, and the executive that I'd pitched in the Griddle Cafe was, was lovely to me throughout and was always able to give me the inside track, and he said, look, you've got to really do this in five or six weeks, or this you're just going to miss the boat this time, you yeah. know? And so it was over Christmas, and my wife, who's here, was amazing <laughs> and let me... My days were joining up, really, by the end of it, because I just wanted to get this right, and I wanted to not... I wanted to deliver and make sure that I'd done everything I could, yeah. you know? So... How was, your, how was your Christmas then? Yes, terrible, <laughs> terrible, pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. But uh, by uh, by the time I'd written it and delivered it, I was amazed. He read the first draft, which I really wouldn't have expected that he would do. But something—it's later that I realised what had chimed with him and what had, what what resonated with him and why he'd wanted to kind of stay very connected to this. But and he read the what, first draft. What was that? What? Well, I, so I flew I flew out there and I sat with him. In, in his office and as we started to talk I realised that actually he had been about the same age as the young boy in the movie growing up yeah. and he uh, he talked to me about it wasn't currently in the script at the point at the, at the time but he you know I sat down with him and he had the script all annotated and corners folded over and post-it notes and everything which is incredible <laughs> incredible you know <laughs> and he talked to me a lot about growing up and his fear of this bomb just dropping out the sky and that, that everything that he knew would change. And he had a distinct memory of reading in, I think it was Time magazine or something, the bomb, the, 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 the sort of targets that the, the, the Soviets would hit in America and the blast radius. And he had worked out that uh, in terms of where his home was, yeah. that they would fall in the blast radius. Yeah. So... At school, they'd advised everyone in the, in the event of a nuclear attack to fill up bathtubs and sinks and everything because the first thing that they get contaminated is the water. So his mum and dad went out for dinner one evening when he was kind of really young, and he filled up every receptacle in the house with water. <laughs> and I remember him telling me this story and, and that first meeting in, in his office, and I thought, well, that's got to be in the movie because that's such a yeah. remarkable thing. I can imagine doing that as a kid. Well, I've got to fill everything up with water, right? Yeah. Right now. So... It made it into the movie. It's in the movie, it, it's in the movie yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and what I realised the more we talked was his father went um, very, very uh, deliberately went out to Moscow at the kind of height of this moment. When Gary Powers had been shot down, um, they the, the Russians took all of the wreckage from the U-2, his flight suit, everything, and they displayed it in a, in a huge kind of hall in Moscow to basically say... Look at these Americans. Look, yeah. look at, look at. You know, we are so much smarter than them. Look at all their equipment. It was all labelled up. It was all. His father um, was offered the opportunity to to travel from. He was a GE executive at the time to travel over to Moscow, yeah. and he took it. He grabbed it and he said, "I'm going to go." And and Spielberg was very, very scared that he wouldn't come back. And he remembers his dad saying to him, "If we don't do things like this, if we don't talk to these people, if we don't have a dialogue, then then we're really going to be in trouble." Yeah. And so I think he sees a lot of James, James Donovan. He sees a lot of his dad in James exactly. Donovan. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, I think, you know. And what, what was the, the difficult, most difficult thing in the script to crack? I think the thing that... The, the big challenge for me was, was the, Gary Powers, the Gary Powers story and how late to introduce that into the movie. Because there's a, there's a big element of the movie which is kind of a two-hander in a way. You know, you've got Mark Rylance and you've got Tom Hanks. You know, you've got the lawyer and the spy... 
and this, I think, remarkable relationship that these two actors bring to, to that. They've got an incredible chemistry, I think, you know. And then it's about... Uh, the challenge for me was how late do I leave the Gary Powers story yeah. to get that going... And then what I realised was when you could intercut between Powers being shot down and um, Donovan representing Abel in court, yeah. when you could get that structurally working, then there's, suddenly historically, that... Historically, isn't there like four or five years between the events? There's not, there's not as much as that. There's like two years, I think. Yeah. We cover quite a big span in the movie, right. I think, in a way that, that is, is truthful but definitely allows us to you know, go to yeah. the hottest parts of the story. Yeah, yeah. But... No, I, I, I wanted to make sure that if we were going to intercut, we were intercutting between the sort of the truthful bits of where each story was dropping at each point, if you know what I mean, even yeah. though we were conflating time a bit. It was yeah. sort of... Yeah. yeah. Um, and how did, how did you learn that the Coen brothers were coming on board? I got, um, I got so lucky on this movie so many times. <laughs> it's a dream, isn't it? This is like... crazy. <laughs> I got Steven Spielberg, and now I can't say his first name. Uh, <laughs> Steve phoned me, Steve and uh, yeah, he, he phoned me and he said, "Look, the Coens have, have you know, they've, they've got a, a friendship with Tom Hanks, and they've directed him before and written for him before in um, Lady Killers, and uh, they've they've found out about this movie and they're intrigued and they want to, you know, and I, I, I'm gonna, we're gonna sort of, they're gonna have a look at it, and I I felt honestly, I felt I've got. Steven Spielberg has said yes to this movie and greenlit it. Tom Hanks has said yes, and now the Coen brothers are... You know, it was an amazing film school for me yeah. to be able to bat on pass with those two... You know, the two of the greatest living screenwriters. Yeah. And to be able to bat on pass... You know, they, they, they picked up scenes in, the, in the, uh, the, the script. They looked at them in the way they do, in the way that they're, they have such an amazing way of looking at characters and the way characters interact with the world... And then it could come back to me and I could take then my pass. Yeah. And then I was writing into production. Right. And then suddenly I'm sitting on set with him, you know, next How to... Was that? It was... Um, what scene were you watching when, when you were on set? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd done my work. I'd written, I'd done all of the production pass and, and I'd done all of that. And he said, come to New York. Right. Well, I'd love you to come to New York. So I went to New York and it was the... It was the Donovan family home, and he said, it's your fault we're here, so you come and sit here. And I sat next <laughs> to him at the monitor. And it's the strangest experience, because th- this is a man that we know through his movies, and we've, we've all, you know, I've watched a lot of DVD extras with him, a lot of documentaries about him, read a lot of books about him. <laughs> um, and suddenly you're experiencing him directing firsthand, the way he talks to actors, the way he relates to technicians the way he relates to Tom Hanks they have a very specific shorthand between them yeah. and you I was pin- I was just pinching myself the whole time wow. just looking at him there and then he then he I went to Berlin as well to the Stasi prison where they um, interrogate uh, Gary Powers and um, he did this really wonderful thing I think he could tell that I wasn't just interested in my bit of the movie my you know the script I was interested in other things as well and he said, let me show you something between setups. He said, come, come here, I'll show you something. And he took me into this, this cell. It was, a, it was a cell in the Stasi prison. There was a scale model of the Glenica Bridge at the end of the movie. Yeah. And he talked me through with a viewfinder, you know. Wow. He talked me through sort of 25 of the 102 setups <laughs> at the end of the movie. <laughs> and 
when he's saying to you, um, come, crouch down a bit, he sees through there, and you're like, I take it off of him, and you're like, yeah, and he's telling you, you know, that'll be tight on Tom Hanks's watch, and you'll be, <laughs> and you're on your own with him, and you're like, this is, this is a dream, honestly, and it's impossible. impossible. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. In, it's, it was ridiculous. Okay, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, give you some time to ask some questions, but just before we get to do that, what has the script kind of done for you? How has it changed your career? Wow. Is, that, um, is it too early to tell? How, how can you... Well, I think, I guess he's just a seal of approval, isn't he? He's a stamp of, of I, I don't know. It, I, what I know is that, I mean, I'm working on, on um, there's a, the, a movie I've written about the, the Boston Marathon bombings and the yeah, manhunt Patriot's for the Day. Patriots Day, yeah, which Peter Berg is going to direct with Mark Wahlberg in, which goes early next year. And I know the producers of that movie read Bridge of Spies very early on when they knew Spielberg was going to direct it. Yeah. And so I think what happens is, you know, he, he chooses to do something and people are interested in his choice and his taste yeah. and his... What, why has he picked this, this guy's script? Like, who is this guy? And I think it just... It, it, it gives you a nice moment for people to, to uh, look at you and sort of weigh you up and work out if they want to work with you, I guess. So it's a... Sure. It's a yeah. Hi. Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, fantastic movie. I uh, just wondered, are there any sort of transcripts or anything from any of the conversations or negotiations? You know, was there any sort of um, historical evidence you could draw upon? From the conversations with the Russians? Yeah. Yeah, there was, um, there was a memoir that, that, that James Donovan kept that was quite uh, very loyally, very dry, very boiled down and simple, but it gave you a sense of what, what was being discussed in each meeting and that allowed me really to start to kind of work out okay if 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 they're talking about these things what's the temperature of the room at that point what where are we in this you know the stakes are this high where are we donovan's got i mean he he had pleurisy all through these negotiations he was in a bit of a state so where was he how ill was he how intemperate was he uh also how much danger did he feel like he was in as well um but the yeah the the record of those, what was discussed between them was a brilliant way for me to have something to grab onto to then sort of turn into a scene, yeah. Uh, thank you very much indeed. I enjoyed the movie. Okay. Uh, my question is that what percentage of the end of script at the moment we seem to your first draft? How much has changed? <laughs> In a percentage. Roughly, I mean... How many drafts, roughly, did, did you get through? Well, so I did, so... they. He greenlit it on the second draft, and then the Coen brothers did a pass, then I did a pass, then we were into production, I did a few tweaks. Um, it's really hard to answer that, to be honest, because structurally it really never changed. Um, and what was so amazing about the collaboration with the Coen brothers was that it was a case of sort of... To get, them, to get them involved in a movie is... They don't do a lot of this stuff. They don't need yeah. to do a lot of this stuff. So they're only ever getting involved in something that they feel strongly about anyway. And so that was, therefore, a lovely relationship in that it was very open. It was very kind of uh, appreciative of what was there. They moved it forward. I could come back on and move it forward again. So hard to know what from the first draft through, but I certainly feel sitting on set hearing Tom Hanks say the words you've written, it felt we'd all made this movie kind of... Yeah. It had been a lovely collaboration, really, yeah. yeah. Uh, great movie. I enjoyed it very much. Oh, uh, just one question. Uh, at one point, Donovan describes Gary Powers as one of the most hated men 
in America. But when he is released and brought home, there seems to be a change of mood. How, how did that come about? Well, it's really interesting when you talk to Americans about Gary Powers. He still is a guy that there are very mixed feelings about him. I mean, at some of the screenings we did in the States, um, people are still very angry that he didn't kill himself. He didn't take that opportunity to end his own life because that's what his orders were. That's what he'd been instructed to do. There are a lot of people that feel like possibly, in the, you know, he, he, he may have given away secrets or classified information. So there was a cloud that remained and, to be honest, remains to this day in, in the mindset of some Americans. What I love about the way that, that, that Steven Spielberg judged that scene on the plane at the end was that the military had a big problem with him because orders are orders, you know, and he didn't follow his orders. So I love how you've got two men coming home in, this, in one shot, in a one shot. You've got two guys coming home. One guy's dog-tired, but he's done what he was sent to do. And not only that, but he's got two guys for one. The other side of the screen, you've got Gary Powers, who is going back to something very, very uncertain. And the bittersweetness of that moment, for me, really... I don't know, it achieves what you would want this movie to achieve, which is it's not hooray America, it's this guy did this thing, but they don't, neither of them really know what they're coming home to, you yeah. know, and I love that, that moment, so. And the, the movie gets a sense of the pressure that Donovan was under, taking the job, just taking the job on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This, this definitely came out of conversations I had with his son and, and, and later on with his, his daughters, you know, who, um, they were under intolerable pressure, in terms of being bullied at school and shots being fired at the house and clients leaving the firm that Donovan worked for. Yeah. I mean, this was a time in America where to line up next to a, a, a communist, you know, a spy, was to, to, to really be the enemy, was to be a hated, hateful figure. Yeah. So I think what he did um, was massively brave. Yeah. And I, it does make me wonder whether, you know, in the day and age we live in now with... with social media and with Twitter and with everything, you know, would that man be able to do that thing? I don't know. Would his family be under an even greater pressure? Yeah. Would it, is it, uh, you know, is it now really impossible for guys like Donovan to do these really unpopular things? It's yeah. interesting, I think. Cool. Yes, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I think the Gary Power story is the first news story that I remember remembering oh, wow. and hearing about it. And like, you know, it was a, it was a huge thing. But what I was wondering, speaking of that period, you said you're interested in the Kennedy period and mm. the Cold War stuff. Um, so is there anything about it that you find particularly difficult to sort of make the leap of imagination to or to sort of put yourself back in Yeah, that I mean, the mindset? thing that I... Absolutely. The thing that I really, really wanted to do was talk to as many people as I could that had, that had lived through that period and had grown up in that period because, you know, obviously I don't... I don't. I wasn't alive during it. So what you're trying to do is trying to access how raw that moment was for people and how high the stakes were. And it was really interesting talking to people who had grown up with that fear of, of, of you know, mutually assured destruction and, and, and that, that being something they went, you know, duck and cover drills for kids who are now in their kind of, you know, mid-60s, late-60s. They still are terrified when you talk to them, American school children that were, you know, about this idea that by putting a book over your head <laughs> and sliding down a wall and, and waiting that you would be all right. I mean, 
I, I, the more I talked to them, the more I, I, I asked more and more people, like, did you believe that? And they said, no, we all, we all knew that that was not going to help us, but we wanted to believe so badly that something would, that we kind of believed that if you had a fairly thick encyclopedia, you would probably be all right. You know? <laughs> and the more I spoke to people who had lived through that period, the more I was able to present this to... Hopefully try and find a way to present this in the script that would feel not sealed behind glass or distant or something that felt safe, but something that felt very immediate um, and very much that we were just going through it again, you know. Um, my, my question is, is just about one little scene in it. Um, and it's the scene where um, Donovan comes to see the judge um, to uh, talk about the sentencing and plead for him not to get the death penalty. And it's very cleverly, uh, it's a very clever scene in that the judge throughout the scene is trying to do up his bow tie, mm-hmm. and he does it in a succession of three mirrors, mm-hmm. and it's all shot on one shot. I just wondered if that was in the script, the idea. No, so that's, absolutely not. That's the I director. Mean, those one shots that he's obviously incredibly yeah. famous for, um, very often uh, it was in the judge's house in the script, and it was, he, the judge was preparing to go out, um, but the idea of him moving from mirror to mirror, uh, was totally, totally Stephen's invention. And I think, I, I love what he does with, with one shots, in, not only in this film, but in, in so many of his films, which allows a moment to build dramatically, but not cut artificially to make an audience, to sort of jar an audience and take them out of an argument. And I think he did it a lot in Lincoln. He does it a lot in this movie because really the weight of a scene between two people, the conversation two people are having, mm. needs to have that flow back and forth. And if it is being cut up by an editor, it feels like you're almost prejudic- prejudicing one side yeah. of the argument over the other. So he sort of lets it, lets it play. But that was his decision. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's so simple as well, because those bow ties are a bugger <laughs> to do up as well, aren't they, right? Like, I want to go back to the point about Gary Powers not committing suicide. Okay. I'm one of those people in their 60s who lived through that in the U.S. where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And coming from a military family, that was the big dining room dinner discussion. Wow. Um, did you ever d- discuss it to a point of it being a deal breaker with Spielberg that you wanted to put that issue into the film? Because... I loved the film, oh, but great. that was the one bit that that uh, I was puzzled about, is why was there nothing, even just him sitting alone and ruminating about it, and why he didn't commit suicide. That, that, that was a major issue in American homes at that time. Did, yeah, did I mean, I think, had, you, had, we done, had we done the Gary Powers story... And the, and the point of view of the story was Gary Powers, I think it would have allowed you to push into those moments. But what I think, what, what I wrote and what, what ultimately I think what, what Steven Spielberg did with the movie was to say, how, how, how is the threat of, of, you know, he has Gary Powers sitting in front of three sharpened pencils with a blank sheet of paper. He's been asked specific questions. The question is, is this guy going to break? Can we get to him before he breaks? And I think... To go too far down the line of, of, of how Gary Powers was feeling and what, he was, um, what his instincts were would almost have been to tip it into a movie about Gary Powers. So I feel like we kept 
we kept that. And I still think there's a debate, even in the way that it's presented in the movie, where you can feel, I think he might have given something away. Or you can feel he definitely didn't. I think, I think it, because it isn't the Gary Powers story, in a way it allows that to remain a bit of a mystery, really, which, which I think is probably the best way to, to treat that, because we still don't entirely know what happened, you know. Matt, you've got, you talked about the, uh, um, uh, the Boston movie you're doing, mm. and you've got an Alcatraz movie, is that right? Well, that, that... Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. So that, that, that was, um, this is the first kind of foray into producing, so I'm not writing that myself. I, I found um, this, this great little corner of history in 1946, a group of guys tried to escape from Alcatraz, and it all went horribly wrong, and they had to take the entire prison hostage. They brought in, the military came in on a huge flotilla and started um, mortar bombing Alcatraz. And the governor of Alcatraz, who had, whose life had been saved by the guy that was leading the escape squad a month before in the canteen, that guy had saved the governor's life. He was caught in the middle of trying to negotiate a peaceful end to this thing. Mm. So the more I kind of pieced this together, the more I thought it was amazing. But I'm... I'm um, you know, because of Bridge of Spies and, 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 and various things, I'm, I'm busy with a, a film for Fox and Patriot's Day and a couple of TV projects for the BBC and for Netflix. So I, I've got a lot on at the moment, but I, I wanted to... Um, I, I really felt like that was a movie that uh, needed to be made. So I, I read a lot of different writers, found two American writers and pitched them the story and they went away and came back and pitched me their version of it. And it was amazing. We, we took it out and... And Paramount optioned it, and so they're right, we're we're working with Paramount at the moment. So I, I guess that seeing how busy you are, you can have another terrible Christmas, aren't you? No, <laughs> not this year. No. This year's going to be a good Christmas. <laughs> I've got a six-month-old little girl and a two and a half-year-old little boy, so this Christmas is going to be, uh, yeah, not about work at all. Okay, well, that's a lovely note to end it on. Um, thank you so much to BAFTA and 20th Century Fox yeah, today, you. and please thank Matt Charles. Thank, thank you. you.